The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. If you're listening to this show live on Unity Online Radio, or if you're catching the podcast shortly after it's recorded, we're starting a new year, 2020. There's lots of work to do. So my thought is maybe we need to start with ourselves and let the power of our positive choices ripple out so that we can affect people and animals and forests and oceans we may never see. So to that end, we're devoting January to your body, your health, and probably your resolutions with our theme for the month, which is MDs for the ND. That would be the new decade. We're going to be featuring cardiologist Dr. Joel Kahn, OBGYNs Dr. Deborah Goldstein and Dr. Nitu Bajikal, and PCRM founder Neil Barnard, MD, with his new book on hormonal health. Can hardly wait to read that one. And we'll kick off this brand new year right now with Dr. Saray Stancic, who overcame the symptoms of debilitating multiple sclerosis with a diet and lifestyle turnaround, and who documents her recovery and her philosophy in the truly lovely documentary, Code Blue. So, welcome new listeners and longtime friends. I'm your host, Victoria Moran, and I have the delightful job of introducing Dr. Stancic. She is triple board certified in internal medicine, infectious diseases, and lifestyle medicine, which caught her attention when she was a patient living with multiple sclerosis. She's the founder of one of the first lifestyle medicine practices in the country, and she mentors the Lifestyle Medicine Interest Group at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. And she'll be following up the film Code Blue with the book of the same title to be released next fall. Welcome, Dr. Stancic. Thank you so much, Victoria. Happy New Year to you and to all of your listeners. It's a great pleasure to be here and to be in the company of the wonderful physicians that you'll be interviewing this month. Thank you so much for the invite. Oh, heavens, it's going to be a great month, and I love it that you're kicking it off. I love it that we're now having more female medical doctors in the lifestyle medicine world, and 
really balancing things out. So that term lifestyle medicine is something that I think a lot of people may not be familiar with or fully understand. So can you fill us in? Sure. So lifestyle medicine is a relatively new discipline uh, whose focus it is to educate and empower patients on the importance of optimal nutrition, a primarily plant-based diet, physical activity, stress management, effective sleep hygiene, the avoidance of tobacco and uh, the near cessation or, you know, better management of alcohol. I think some of us may drink too much and also the importance of social interconnectedness. And all of this is a value because when we look at the scientific literature, we know that when we optimize these behavioral aspects, we can indeed prevent 80% of chronic disease and even better manage and even reverse some of the many chronic diseases we see today in clinical practice. So this is you know, very, very, very exciting. And, and really in, in contrarian to what um, I learned in medical school, right? In medical school, we train physicians to, to identify or to make the diagnosis. And then we typically treat with pharmaceuticals or procedures or surgical interventions. And lifestyle medicine really sort of complements that approach by, you know, prevention should be first. And so really training physicians to, to prevent, uh, um, to put that first rather than secondary. And I think that's an important shift that we need to apply to clinical medicine in order to be successful in the environment in which we live today, which is, of course, uh, we are drowning in chronic diseases that are largely preventable by modifying our behaviors. And how many lifestyle medicine physicians are there in the U.S. or, or in the world? Is it easy to find one? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the discipline is relatively new. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine just celebrated its 15th year in existence. So the population is growing. I can tell you the first uh, conference that I attended, I think it was in 2012, there might have been a couple hundred physicians in the room. This last uh, conference, we had more than, I think, 2,000. So it's definitely growing. And there is now uh, certification in lifestyle medicine so physicians can get board certified in the discipline. This began, I believe, this is the third year in existence. I was in the initial class. Um, I gained certification two years ago. And so it is growing. And, and we're also, and it's not just physicians, it's also bringing into, into the fold um, other uh, healthcare professionals like nurses and pharmacists and physical therapists. We're really growing. Uh, it's exciting to see this movement of prevention first uh, and really educating and empowering patients to take control of their personal health outcomes. I think this idea that we are um, uh, predict that the genes predict our outcomes is really coming out of fashion. Uh, and, uh, and we're now really learning that so much of the decisions that we make uh, bear such an important importance on our outcomes. And that's the entire science of epigenetics that, that tells us that gene expression is really dependent on, on our behaviors. Uh, and getting that message out to patients is incredibly powerful and we're seeing uh, um, lives change. And, and that is so exciting to me uh, to, to really uh, create health and wellness in, in our community and, and to witness it to me has been incredibly empowering. Now, I know that you are in New Jersey and are, are you are still seeing patients? I am still seeing patients. I'm, I'm, a, I'm in Ramsey, New Jersey. I'm about 20 miles from New York City. Um, although, you know, as I, 
I think in the future, what I'm hoping to do is really move to 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 uh, practice more public health issues and really be a voice for change, not only in, in the healthcare setting, but also, and importantly, I think we need to bring change to the curricula of medical schools. We need to train physicians that are well-versed uh, in, in the aspects of lifestyle medicine. This is not happening today. Uh, nutrition is an incredibly important aspect of maintaining health and well-being, and yet in medical schools, we get little to no uh, education in nutrition. In fact, this, the uh, expectation is that we deliver 25 hours of nutrition education over four years, which is really um, uh, minimal, and only 27% of medical schools actually deliver that. And even the education that we do get is not really nutrition that we can use to educate our patients. It's really more like biochemistry and you know, vitamin deficiencies like scurvy, which we never see, of course. So the information is really outdated uh, and, and we really need to tackle that so that uh, we have these basic skills on which we can uh, you know, develop uh, everything else. But this is the basic foundation on which uh, all healthcare professionals should be educated, and, and regrettably, that's not happening today. Well, something that I've noticed going to conferences that are primarily for healthcare professionals is that many of them come and they have some of the same misconceptions that lay people do. And, and they ask the same questions that I hear when I'm giving a presentation to just regular folks. And they'll ask about... Um, uh, beans and isn't there something wrong with eating beans or they'll ask about protein deficiency or some of these other things that one would think they would already have gotten through. So do you think that healthcare professionals are vulnerable just like everybody else to uh, the, the internet and, and the press? Absolutely. I mean, they're hearing the same messages and they're, and, and regrettably they end up repeating them. Uh, and so they're just misinformed. They're just as misinformed as the general public. Uh, I know that sounds, uh, it's hard to believe, but that's the truth. And by no fault of their own, um, they're just not taught this in medical school. The approach in medical school is, as I said, um, you know, it's this idea of, of pathology is really understanding the, the, the how disease occurs and then the treatment or, or the plan uh, once we've made a diagnosis, uh, the way we're taught it includes a pharmaceutical agent, a procedure, or a surgical intervention. Uh, and so that's the current um, uh, reality uh, that we experience in medical school. And even the way we train physicians needs to be uh, addressed. I mean, it's it's this idea that, you know, we're, we're, we're working 24, 36 hours straight, um, uh, that we're highly stressed. You know, sleep is a problem. I mean, you know, the principles of lifestyle medicine are completely ignored uh, in, in a field uh, uh, in, in medical education. I mean, think about it. We don't eat very well. Uh, we just don't have time. We're highly stressed. Um, we're, we're not sleeping. All, you know, all the aspects that we know are so important, maintaining health uh, and well-being are, are not practiced by those of us who are supposed to be representing health and wellness in our communities. We know that, for example, we have very high rates of depression, highest rate of suicide in in, in our profession, physicians, which is remarkable, uh, considering, again, that we are charged with um, caring for our communities. So we're we, we tend to be very good at, at caring for others, but we are not very good at caring for ourselves. And, and that 
needs to change. And I think that those are messages that are starting to um, be discussed in many medical schools. I, I, you know, I, I think a couple of years ago, regrettably, at NYU here in New York City, we had two suicides occur, I think, over one weekend. It was a very sad occasion. But but I think it, it's raised these um, points that we really need to talk about uh, and understand what is happening in our field and why do we have this preponderance of burnout and, and depression. And again, a field whose, whose chief um, responsibility is to disseminate health and, and health care. Uh, so I think these are all, you know, very important uh, aspects. And s- some of the some of this I, I, I tried to touch on uh, in Code Blue because the film not only speaks to the power of lifestyle medicine and certainly how it affected uh, my life, but also to bring awareness and shedding light on, on these lapses in medical school and what we need to do so that moving forward, we correct um, these lapses so that we can create a healthier population of healthcare professionals moving forward, because I think we have to be uh, examples for our community. I mean, I think that's important. I, the way I, I advise my patients to eat and sleep and to exercise, this is what I do on a daily basis. So it's important to me to be an example for my patients. Uh, and, 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 and the idea is, of course, for us to all um, um, enjoy good quality of life and age gracefully. And the film is so wonderful to inspire people to do that. And you also touched there on the stresses that you talked about in in medical school and and internships. Those were really damaging for you. So tell us a little bit of your story. Well, yeah, extraordinarily. uh, I mean, even on the day that I I was diagnosed, I was a third year medical resident, Victoria. Uh, I can tell you that I, you know, I hadn't slept in 24 hours. I was uh, running around in the middle of this very busy call, um, super stressed, you know, worrying about my boards and worrying about my uh, residency or my fellowship. I mean, there's ex- one exam after another. And on this particular night, around, uh, you know, three o'clock in the morning, I finally got to bed. And when I woke up, probably about a half an hour later, I found that I couldn't move my, I couldn't feel my legs rather. Uh, and that led to the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. But, you know, that didn't happen overnight. There was a lot of damage that was occurring during my training and during medical school. Again, that that day after day of of high stress and and not sleeping and the expectations. I mean, think about it. If you if you don't if you're if you expected to work a 24 hour shift and and then you you have an exam the following week, where, where do you find time to sleep? Where do you find time to nourish yourself properly? Where do you find time to exercise? Right, exercise is such an important part. Uh, of well-being. So uh, there I was, a 28-year-old young woman, um, uh, newly diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And I can tell you, as an inpatient during that first admission, the physician came into the room and said to me, you know, you, there's a high burden of disease on your MRI. There's there's a lot of damage. And, and um, I know you're 28 years old and your expectation is to pursue uh, a career in medicine, but you need to think about um, what's next for you because there's a good possibility that within 20 years you'll you will be disabled. And um, I can tell you that that's very difficult to hear uh, at the age of, of 28 after investing so much time and energy to achieving my dream, which was to become a physician. And so it was really um, a, a difficult moment in my life. And and what followed, of course, was um, eight years of, of 
tremendous challenges where I would have exacerbations regularly. I was taking medications to, at the time there was only one drug approved by the FDA um, for, for this indication of multiple sclerosis. And I was taking that medication and the medication had a significant side effect profile. Um, and I knew before I knew it, within a couple of years, I was taking about a dozen medications, often uh, requiring a cane, even at times a diaper, uh, embarrassingly enough. And I, you know, I was doing everything my doctors uh, advised me to do, taking the medications, but the disease was progressing. Uh, and, you know, I at one point felt uh, you know, essentially hopeless. And it was then in 2003 that I came across by chance an article that discussed uh, the, the role that diet could play in multiple sclerosis. And that to me was like, wow, you know, it was like that big aha moment. Um, it was like light just, you know, filled the room. And, and that's what, you know, triggered or, or began my, this um, insatiable appetite to learn more because wow, there's power in what's on my plate? And why was I never taught this? And why are my doctors who are experts in this field, or why are they not talking about it? Uh, and so that was the beginning of all of this. And, and uh, it's, been, it's been an extraordinary ride over the past 15 years. And you tell it so beautifully in Code Blue. I highly recommend this film to everybody, even friends and relatives who have no interest in plant-based and they might think, you know, the vegan cousin is a little off. This <laughs> is an engrossing film. I think anybody would enjoy it and get so much out of it. So I know that you have a new distribution deal. This is so exciting. So what does this mean and where can we see Code Blue? Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah. So the film for the past year has really been disseminated via grassroots. You know, we, we've been doing small screenings across, you know, schools, medical schools, libraries, churches, and it's been wonderful. And I've had the opportunity to, to attend some of these screenings and then do Q and A's and really have uh, really important conversations with, with uh, communities across the country. But um, in May of this year, Victoria, I had the wonderful opportunity of um, meeting up with John Corey, who was the producer for Forks Over Knives, which I'm sure you and your audience are very familiar with, an extraordinary film that's been so important in our movement. And uh, John had seen the film and he, and he said, you know, you have a great film, but um, let's, let's make it even better. So John came on board and we brought on uh, a team and, and actually a new co a composer that wrote original music. So we took the film and we um, just tightened it up and, and shortened it just a little bit and cleaned it up. And I think um, it's even better now. And I'm really, it's sort of Code Blue 2.0. And uh, we presented this to um, a distributor Virgil Films and they, they were um, happy to offer a deal. And, and I'm excited because Virgil Films also distributed forks over knives. So I'm in good company um, with this extraordinary team. So I met with the president and immediately, you know, felt like family. They have a wonderful team uh, dedicated to, to helping me disseminate this message. And so um, we're hoping uh, that uh, the film will be available to the general public uh, by May of this year. And so that, that will mean you know, having it available on, on several streaming platforms so that individuals can, can uh, or even for, for some of us who are 
old timers who prefer DVDs or Blu-rays, that, that'll be uh, an option as well. Um, but I also want to continue doing these uh, screenings because I, uh, I think these screenings in, in towns where um, we have, uh, you know, both healthcare professionals and community members in the audience. And we have really important discussions about what we can do in our part of the world to make it just a little bit better. Um, you know, speaking to restaurant business owners in the community, speaking to uh, healthcare professionals in the community. What could you do to make your community safer? Um, we have, um, there's something called Walk with the Doc, which we cover in the film, which is an, a wonderful organization uh, started by a dear friend of mine, uh, David Sabger, who's a cardiologist. He might be a great person for you to interview in Ohio, who started an organization called Walk with the Doc, and it encourages communities where you meet up with your physician in the park and you just walk. And these are wonderful opportunities because it's not just getting in the physical activity, but you're also uh, connecting with other like-minded people. So there's a social, the social interconnectedness aspect of lifestyle medicine, which is really important. And we also, during these meetings, um, we talk about a particular topic, like maybe a patient wants to talk a little bit about plant-based nutrition and what that looks like. So we'll do a, like a quick 10-minute little lecture right there in the park. So it educates everyone who attends and we all uh, gain great benefit from it. So I think the, the, the screenings and the opportunity to meet people across the country for me has been just really joyful. And I hope to do that uh, with the launch of, of the film, we're talking about doing a Code Blue tour. So we're hoping to do like a, maybe a 15 to 20 city uh, tour across the country. And hopefully we'll meet uh, lots of people who are interested in helping us disseminate this message yeah, uh, as effectively as possible. That is so exciting. And then, of course, the book follows. I know you now have a book deal, so we'll be looking for the Code Blue book uh, next September. So let's just uh, dive down a little bit more into multiple sclerosis, which I believe is described as an autoimmune condition. So maybe you could describe for our listeners exactly what that is, because yeah. I think anybody who's read a lot, who's listened to a lot of, of episodes of this podcast, other vegan or plant-based podcasts, knows that this way of eating is so great for heart disease, so great for type 2 diabetes. We hear less about some of these other illnesses. So, so help us out a bit. Great question. So multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease. And so autoimmune disease means that your, your immune system is is attacking you, right? So the immune system has an important function. It's supposed to protect us from foreign invaders like bacteria, virus, fungi. So when we come into, con or even a precancerous cell, so the body sees a, a, a precancerous cell, the autoimmune, uh, rather the immune system is supposed to go there and destroy it because that's not, uh, that's foreign and we don't want that to happen. So it's supposed to protect us. But in, in autoimmune disease, it's confused those very same cells that are so important in protecting us against those foreign invaders start to, to injure us. And it depends on which, you know, disease in multiple sclerosis, it's attacking myelin, which is the fatty sheath that protects our brain and our central nervous system, our brain and spinal cord. And so it starts to pop holes in this myelin. And so that leads to uh, neurological deficits like, you know, tingling or, you know, sensory uh, maybe uh, uh, weakness in our legs. It could affect our bladder. It could affect our our eyes, and it can cause uh, uh, temporary blindness, something called optic neuritis. So 
In multiple sclerosis, it's attacking myelin, but in other autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, it's attacking the lining of the joint, uh, or in lupus, it could attack, uh, you know, the heart, the kidney, uh, the skin. So autoimmune diseases have that all in common in that essentially the immune system is confused and starts to attack part of you. And so, so the question is, what evidence do we have that uh, diet and, and lifestyle could be playing a role in, in multiple sclerosis? And we're getting a lot of really interesting information in, in the past recent years. In 1952, and this was the article that really sort of spurred my interest, there was an article written by a gentleman named Dr. Roy Swank, who wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. And in it, he talked about the incidence of multiple sclerosis uh, in Europe. And he, in Norway, rather. And in Norway, he noted that the highest rates, which, by the way, this country happens to have one of the highest rates in the world, he noticed that when he drilled down, he looked at the specifics of what was happening in Norway, the highest rates were occurring in those living in the farming uh, community, where they were consuming uh, great amounts of dairy and animal sources. So lots of saturated fat. So back in 1952, Swank proposed that potentially saturated fat was playing a role in the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis. Now, this was just a theory, but he actually started treating patients with a primarily plant-based diet in the 1950s and essentially followed about 140 plus patients and reported after following them for 34 years, his findings. And he, he published in, in the 1990s in the journal Lancet that 95% of his patients remained disability-free on this primarily plant-based diet, which was remarkable. Now, he wasn't really accepted by mainstream medicine because he didn't have a control arm, and so he's criticized for that. But today, we're learning more and more about, about Dr. Swank and, and why his theory might be of value. In recent studies, what we've learned is that when you eat a primarily plant-based diet that is a diet rich in fiber, you are affecting the makeup of the microbiome. And the microbiome, of course, is this you know, collection of organisms in our gut. And we're learning a lot about the makeup of this gut. So we have good bacteria and we have bad bacteria. And so when we eat a fiber-rich diet, we're actually feeding or enriching the good bacteria. And this remarkably, Victoria, these good bacteria produce chemical signals that then affect the immune system either favorably or unfavorably. And there's been important studies that have been published that have been done at Mount Sinai. Another study published recently uh, that was conducted in Milan, Italy, again, reinforcing this idea that what you eat, a fiber-rich diet, affects the makeup of the bugs in your gut, and they, in turn, affect your immune system. So I love it. I love it. Let's come back with those wonderful bugs and all this great information after our break. Everybody stay with us through these announcements. We'll be back with more from Dr. Saray Stancic, Code Blue. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. 
the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. And you know, we are actually a live radio show every Wednesday afternoon. If you want to listen live someday, uh, just go to www.unityonlineradio.org and you can listen as it happens and you can actually call in and ask your questions. Uh, So just keep that in mind sometime when at uh, three o'clock to four o'clock U.S. Eastern time, you happen to be available and you want to get in on something while it's happening. I also invite you to check out my website, which is MainStreetVegan.net. Lots and lots of stuff goes on over there. We have a weekly blog to which you can subscribe. The blog this week is an excerpt from my book, The Good Karma Diet. It's called Pummeling Perfection. Because as much as we want to do this and do it right and do it to the letter, you know, sometimes we just need to breathe and know that it might not always be perfect in every way, but we are aspiring to the very best we can do. And there are thousands of people all around the world who can tell us how amazing being nearly perfect (laughs) is. Thank you so much for that. So let's get back with this fascinating conversation with Dr. Sarah Stancic. You can find her online at codebluedoc.com or Dr. Stancic, S-T-A-N-C-I-C.com. And you can find out more on Facebook at Code Blue Film or Twitter at StancicMD or Instagram at Dr. Stancic. And all of those will be on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. So everybody wants to know, what do you eat? What do you do? How do you live in recovery from this condition? And as a spokesperson for lifestyle medicine, give us a day in the life. Yeah, and I think that's a great uh, point. I, w- I just want to make we ended before on talking about um, Swank's work and the importance of diet and how it affects our microbiome and that in turn affecting our immune system. But of course, it's not just our diet, right? There are other aspects that are very, very important. We know, for example, smoking and excess weight and sedentary behavior increase our risk of multiple sclerosis and other autoimmune diseases and also worsen our outcomes. So it's it's all of that. So a typical day for me includes addressing, I call it the six spokes on the lifestyle medicine wheel. So really tending to them on a daily basis. So waking up in the morning and, I, and I'm an early riser, I get up at 5 a.m. And at 5 a.m. I typically do a, a three mile run or, or walk Um, I practice meditation early in the morning. Uh, Breakfast for me is typically, you know, oatmeal with ground flax and cinnamon and a bowl of berries or some some fruit uh, early in the morning. And then uh, lunchtime for me is typically a big green salad with, you know, garbanzo beans or, um, you know, or even sometimes leftovers from something I made the night before. I love to cook. So 
Um, I typically will cook enough on an evening so that I can often feed myself, my kids, and my husband. So that's always fun. Um, I'm, I have always fruit uh, ready in my office, in my home. So I, I, d I tend to have mid-morning, mid-afternoon snacks that are typically uh, fruit. So an apple, um, a pear, a banana, whatever. But it's always important for me to have fruit throughout the day. Uh, and then dinner is, for me, um, always uh, it's important to have family. So this is a time where uh, this is part of that lifestyle me medicine prescription. It's not just how, you know, sitting down and eating a plant-based meal, but also that social interconnectedness. I have a 15-year-old daughter and, and a 19-year-old son and, and my husband, and it's, and it's important for us to sit together and share meals and talk about our day. And that's really, that's medicine, you know, sharing uh, with those you love, I, I, I think is an important aspect of, an, of a life well lived. And dinner for, for me is again, uh, centered around the plant. Uh, and we have, uh, my husband is Italian American from Brooklyn. So, um, you know, pasta dishes, Italian uh, style dishes are, are a big part of, of, our, of our diet. Um, I'm Cuban. So um, I love bean dishes. So uh, like my favorite dinner would be something like brown rice with black beans and avocado and, and a big uh, green salad. Um, and my husband, uh, conversely, one of his favorite dishes would be like a recchietti. You know, it's interesting. My husband, um, uh, one of his favorite dishes growing up uh, was a, a dish called the recchietti with broccoli rabe and Italian sausage. And so we've modified that dish. And instead of Italian sausage, we add cannellini beans. And instead of maybe my mother-in-law uses two bushels of broccoli rube, rabe, I use three. So it's always about, uh, you know, enriching the plant and, and minimizing uh, or eliminating the animal. And um, we just uh, and it's been great. My, you know, my family is 100 uh, percent on board and. And uh, it's great to see my kids uh, eating in a helpful fashion and, and hopefully uh, behaving as examples for, for their friends. Uh, and, and, and that's an important part, too, of, of what I hope to accomplish is really disseminating this message to our youth. So that's part of getting into high schools and elementary schools and educating young people about the importance of their lifestyle choices, because we want to make these um, these uh, changes as early as possible, and even better if we can raise children um, uh, at the time of birth in, in a home that is lifestyle medicine oriented so that we can indeed prevent. Um, regrettably, in my practice, most of what I see are patients who are coming in after having uh, an unfortunate event like a heart attack or uh, being diagnosed with diabetes or, or dealing with, with uh, obesity. Um, or even uh, alcohol dependence. So uh, ideally, again, this idea or this theme that we want to focus primarily on prevention, that's really where we should put our place our emphasis. And, and, and I think if we do that, we will create an, um, an incredible and, and fruitful shift in what uh, the healthcare environment looks like. Oh, it sounds like a beautiful life. Now, I picked up Four of the six spokes in what you described, plant-based diet, exercise, sleep, social interconnectedness. What are the other two? So um, substance abuse. Okay. Um, we talked about physical activity. Mm-hmm. So I think, is, which ones did you have? So it's, it's We're still, we're at five. Okay. Diet, 
Physical, physical activity, sleep, social, stress, stress, sub, stress management. Okay. Stress management. So that's, that's the meditation. Okay. Yeah. And the exercise. I love how some of these things kind of, um, you know, overlap. So something like exercise is great for the body and great for the mind. Absolutely. And sleep, right? You know, when we sleep, sleep affects diabetes, believe it or not. If we don't sleep effectively, we increase our risk of diabetes and we're, and our diabetes um, is, is, is less likely to be uh, uh, managed effectively. Uh, so all of the, these spokes on the lifestyle medicine wheel interact. And, and when you, but it's important that we, we address them all near simultaneously. So, I, you know, I have some patients that are really good with physical activity. Uh, you know, they run marathons and they lift weights, but their diet is horrific. Uh, and, they, and you can't outrun a bad diet. You've heard that before. <laughs> it's so true. So really helping patients to understand that they're all interconnected and they all affect one another. When we're highly stressed, again, we're going to affect our, our risk of, of, of um, heart disease and diabetes. And, and we tend to not connect those dots. Yeah, I think a good example is, for example, uh, cancer, right? So uh, most women don't really understand the connections between our lifestyle and our risk of, of breast cancer. And this is a topic that is of great interest to me. Uh, and, and I covered this in the film. Uh, where I interviewed Dr. Graham Colditz, who's an extraordinary uh, cancer researcher at Washington University. And I had seen him speak um, several years ago, and, and I wanted to interview him because he said something that I thought was so meaningful. You know, in October, we have Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we bring so much attention to this all-important um, uh, malignancy. And, you know, we wear pink, and, and we have even the NFL football players wear pink, and we have these um, walks, Susan G. Coleman and Avon, which is great. We're bringing awareness and we're bringing uh, a lot of uh, money to to, to, uh, to the whole movement. But the, we know today, and Dr. Colditz speaks to this in the film, that if we optimize um, our diets, if we teach young women, because our risk of breast cancer begins at the time of menarche, so 12, 13 years old, if we educate young girls about the importance of their diet, about the importance of avoiding excessive alcohol, about the importance of maintaining a healthy weight and, and, um, and exercise, that we could prevent, are you ready for this, 50%, 50% of breast cancer could be prevented. We have the knowledge and understanding today to do that. And that's what we should be talking about. That message should be relate. I mean, we should be standing on hilltops and assuring that, that young women and women get this messaging and they're not. So what we talk about during Breast Cancer Awareness Month is early detection, uh, which is mammography and breast self-exam. And, and now all of that, Victoria, is important, of course, but my goodness, we're, we pay no attention to what we know today could potentially prevent 50% of disease, of, 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 of future breast ca uh, cancer cases. And I think that's extraordinary. And we need to tap into that. And we need to educate women across our country and beyond so that we can save lives in, in, in a truly preventive fashion. Mm, that is brilliant. And how wonderful that everybody listening today now knows this and can share it with their daughters and uh, every other woman that they know. So I picked out a few things from what you said when you were describing your day that I just want to ask about and get into some of the nitty gritty, which I often don't have time. Sometimes people can only do one segment and I can't get into these, you know, questions within the questions. 
So you said that you get up at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. And I have found that in recent years, it, it's harder for me to get up in the morning because I'm often up in the middle of the night and it's a little hard sometimes to get back to sleep. So if somebody feels that they didn't have a good night's sleep, are they better off just getting up anyway or sleeping in a little bit? Yeah, I, that's a great question. So sleep hygiene, this is very important and you have to do what works best for you. Uh, sleep hygiene means that we, we, we want to get in eight hours of sleep ideally. That, that's, that's what the evidence in the literature and the sleep literature tells us, that we really do need eight hours. I hear this all the time where people say to me, I only need five or I only need six. You really need the eight hours. But it, it, it can be different for each of us. Um, you want to choose and you want to stick to a go to bed time and a wake up time that's fixed whenever possible. Of course, they're going to they're going to be days that you can't do that. New Year's Eve, you want to stay up and, and celebrate. That's fine. But in general, and I, I go to bed, you know, nine thirty, nine o'clock. So there's an eight hour window um, in, in between my go to bed and, and my wake up time. Now, that works for me. And that allows me to be as productive as I am. And it allows me because, by the way, you know, I never say I'm cured of this disease. It is a disease that I manage. So I know that that sleep and recovery is so important for me. You want to make sure that your room is cool, dark and quiet. Right. These are important factors in assuring that you have the correct environment in which to sleep. And the other thing is that it's important for us to avoid alcohol because alcohol uh, particularly when around the time we're going to go to bed, because yes, it may it might lead to to your falling asleep, but it's going to and it's not going to be effective sleep. We need to you know we, we need to reach those deep stages of sleep, and when we drink alcohol, or even when we're you know staring at a phone, that's another problem that we that we see in in the world that we live in today, where we're taking our phones into our bedroom and we're checking email or you know checking Instagram five minutes before we go to bed and staring at that blue light that then affects melatonin release from from the brain and it interrupts the normal sleep cycle. So your room should be cool, dark, and quiet. No televisions, no phones, uh, and you should set you should set a go to bed and wake up time um, that it works for you like 90 or you know as close to as often as possible again there there are going to be days where you're traveling or like i said new year's eve but you really want to stick to the schedule when you do that um you're going to adopt ideal sleep hygiene and you're going to sleep effectively Mm, love it well the phone was the point that i picked up on that one thank you (laughs) you talked about breakfast that you have oatmeal and we hear wonderful things about oatmeal and lowering cholesterol and all of that And yet so many of the people that I know who do this so well, who age miraculously, who remain uh, disease-free into very late life, are more of the raw fooders and they don't eat any grains. So where do grains fit? Are they absolutely required or can we do without them if we're eating plenty of fruits, vegetables, beans, nuts, and seeds? Yeah, well, I mean, I think grains are an important part of a plant-based diet, and I know that there are um, concerns with with gluten, and um, and that's been a whole phenomenon. And and we, you know, we could dedicate an entire talk, an uh, entire um, show to the the this uh, the gluten phenomenon that's overtaken our country. But I think we have to be very careful uh, about it. When we look at studies, um, whole grains are an important part 
of our diet. We've seen um, uh, literature that, that illustrates the importance of whole grains in um, re reducing risk of diabetes and, and better managing diabetes. I keep bringing up diabetes, Victoria, because it's such a huge problem in the world we live in today. It is the epidemic uh, of the decade. Uh, you know, when I was in medical school, rates of diabetes in this country, about 2%. Today, we're brushing past 10%. And the CDC predicts that by 2050, by the time my son is my age, more than 30% of us will be diabetic. And I can tell you that our healthcare system, as it stands, will implode. It cannot support that. So diabetes is a huge problem for us, and it's something that we need to address uh, because the direction in which we're traveling is really deleterious. And, and again, this idea of, of grains being part of a healthy diet uh, in, in addressing that epidemic have, have been shown um, um, really quite dramatically. So I think oh. the, the, the grain topic really should, can, it, it should be a conversation you have with your physician on an individual basis, but there are certainly many, uh, from my perspective, many more benefits than, than, uh, than risks. Very good. Now, big green salad. I think that so many people, when they're looking at whole food, plant-based nutrition, it's all easy until they get to the no oil part, particularly when it comes to salads. So what do you put on your salad? So I'm pretty simple. I, I just do like, a, I have a really great balsamic vinegar that I get at Trader Joe's that I love. So I typically use that, but sometimes it really depends. Like I'll mix it up. If I'm doing like a very uh, like Caribbean uh, salad, um, I might use just some lime. Uh, I'm, I don't really use a, a oil very rarely. If I use it, I use it very minimally or sparingly. Um, but I tend to, to just use like a simple uh, balsamic vinegar on most of my salads, which I love. Okay. And then family, and you talked about your beautiful family and having dinner around a table. And I'm sure that there are people listening to us right now who live alone, who don't have a family nearby, who maybe don't have the kind of social network that we would describe as robust. What can you say to them? I think there's always an opportunity to get involved in something in your community, you know, like a, a, attending, like I said, these, you know, walk with the docs, they're, they're really all over the country. So looking it up and seeing which one is near you so you can get out and meet other like-minded people. Um, even in, within your own community, uh, the local libraries have lectures that attend, that you can attend. Finding something maybe that you're passionate about. Do you like to garden, join the local you know, gardening club? But find yourself uh, uh, surrounding yourself, rather, surrounding yourself with, with others. I think that's so, so important. And again, the literature, this is one of the, the chapters in my book, is the importance of, of, of social interconnectedness and how it affects our health outcomes. We, we've seen connections with, uh, you know, a reduction in dementia and Alzheimer's disease, a reduction in heart disease, uh, a reduction in even, um, you know, cardiometabolic disorders. So I think it's important uh, to find, um, and, and again, you don't have, it doesn't have to be uh, 10 people, but really having someone in which you can confide, someone in which you can share a meal with, someone um, in which you can participate in some activity and, and just have conversations. Uh, a local book club, that's, that's, that's a wonderful um, opportunity to meet up and you know, you're reading a book and then you're meeting up and discussing it. Uh, the, these are uh, 
found all over the country and, and even churches or synagogues, you know, finding um, opportunities to just cohabitate and, 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 and have discussions with others, I think is, is medicinal and, and important. That's terrific. So my last question based on your day is you talked about uh, eliminating the animal and enriching the plants. So what is it about plants beyond just not having the animals? What is it about plants that makes this way of eating so special? Well, plants are, are, are extraordinary because the, the, the most important um, uh, ingredient in all of this, of course, is fiber, right? And I think it's, it's we, we sort of grew up in, in this world where protein was the center of the world and, and protein meant uh, health. And, and that was, um, you know, misguided. It was, it was this great grand misconception that we've been raised on. Um, and it's really about fiber. Fiber is the is the the key nutrient. It is it should be the star of the decade. And we need to make fiber really really cool because fiber really does so much good. In that again, g- going back to the microbiome, how it affects the makeup of those organisms. And we're again we're learning so much about um, how this balance uh, of good versus bad bugs in our gut is playing a role in our health outcomes. So, you know, a fiber-rich diet is um, only found in plants, right? We, there's no fiber in any animal uh, sources. It's only in plants. And, of course, plants, when you look at a, at, at a plant and you see those big, bright, beautiful colors, right, the purples and the greens and the reds, when you go into the produce aisle and you just meet up with all this gorgeous color, those are the phytochemicals, the phytonutrients, the antioxidants that are so critically important in, in maintaining healthy cells so that we um, so that we keep those good genes on you know these are epigenetic marks um, reducing oxidative stress at the level of the cell and maintaining uh, and optimizing um, uh, the the expression of those good genes and and and, um, and I don't, you just feel better I mean you just have more energy it's not just you know you're reducing your risk of heart disease and obesity and, and diabetes but you just feel better your mind's clearer you have more energy you feel it I it, you know it's hard to describe until you try it but I would I would recommend and for many people you know going strictly vegan overnight is is extraordinarily difficult and that, and I agree that you don't necessarily have to do that. It's really about creating the plant as the center of the plate. And so I say to my, you know, I have patients who come to see me like, Doc, I love steak and I'm not going to give it up. I'm like, okay, well, let's do this. In the past, it's taken up half of your plate, the steak. Let's make it a quarter of your plate. And that potato, instead of embarrassing with embarrassing it with uh, sour cream and butter, let's just, you know, eat that baked potato and put a little salt and pepper on it and then flush that the rest of your plate with lots of colorful um, veggies. Let's add some broccoli and asparagus and and sweet, you know, whatever it is that you enjoy, uh, Brussels sprouts, and and fill that plate, overflow that plate with lots of plants. And you start to see a shift, and patients start to feel better, and they start to recognize that you know what, this food actually tastes really good, and I feel better. My cholesterol dropped thirty points. I lost you know, 10 pounds over the past three months, my mood is better. I have, you know, my joints aren't bothering me. I will go out for that walk. And all of a sudden you start to see people really brighten up and, and it, it it's infectious. It spreads. And, well, and beautiful. It, yeah. 
Um, I get a little bit excited, as you can tell. Well, and as well you should. So we have about a minute and a half, and I know you're very excited that there are signs all over that plant-based nutrition is becoming popular. What are you yeah. seeing that's getting you jazzed? Well, I mean, I mean, just, you know, so exciting. I'm watching the news the other day, and I hear about uh, the Golden Globes um, serving a plant-based meal. And that that's amazing. So this is really becoming very mainstream. And the wonderful thing about that um, is that, you know, it was covered uh, all over the news. And then uh, I noticed that a lot of people were writing stories about what plant-based nutrition was. In our local CBS news, there was a little excerpt done on it, a little story. Um, and, and that's good. I mean, it's about making this terminology mainstream and people becoming familiar with it. Uh, and that helps to, to um, educate and empower patients across the country. And I'm excited about that. And I know during the Golden Globes, they talked about they did this for environmental reasons. And that's fine. But what they failed to mention was the extraordinary health benefits. And that's my job. And that's what I hope to, to spread across the country. I love this. And it's really the only way to eat that covers everything. It, it, really it takes care of health. It saves the planet. It saves the lives of animals. It creates <laughs> more food for starving people. So they won't be starving people. It's, uh, it's, it's it really is, holistic. It really is. It's all about love and, and um, assuring that we all age gracefully and we give more than we take. How beautiful. Well, that is something lovely on which to end. Dr. Saray Stansick, the film is Code Blue. You gotta see it and <laughs> pay attention to this lady. And please join us next week. We'll be talking with Dr. Joel Kahn. To everyone listening, thank you so much. To Unity Online Radio, thank you for broadcasting us for low these eight years. So to all of you, be happy. Be healthy, be blessed, be vegan. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.